So, you know, uh, many, well, like a month ago, I began a few messages on Israel uh, in light of the war that had started and this um, pull that I felt uh, in my heart to try to talk about this country and its importance in God's word in the past and in the present and in the future. Um, it's not something that historically we've talked a great deal about in this church, but I felt that it was important because I think it's going to stay important and it's going to maybe even in our season of life become increasingly important. I don't know, um, but I think that's the trajectory that I believe the scripture paints is that um, the weight of what concerns Israel becomes more and more um, weighty to the whole world. And, and so um, it's been in my heart to finish this because um, I want us to get back to some other things, Romans and some other things. And, um, and next week when we have Christmas, um, it's going to be a special morning to really focus on, um, obviously you can't focus on Christmas without focusing on Israel, but it's going to be a morning to focus on the Lord's birth and um, more prominently. But as I was praying this week about what to preach on, I, I felt moved by the Lord to, uh, to come back to this and to recognize that um, more deeply than I have how inextricably bound Christmas um, and the gift of Jesus Christ born for the whole world is bound up in Jesus Christ born for Israel. How you really can't separate Christmas from this tiny nation and God's um, God's aim and great faithfulness. So we're going to take a look at Israel uh, as a focus, I believe, probably for the last time for a while. Um, that's my best sense. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about it in the context of Christmas at the front and back ends. So um, may the Lord help you to, um, to process this and um, help me to preach it with honor and respect for God's word. And uh, as Debbie prayed, I'm going to trust that prayer is effective for us this morning. So I've titled this, um, this is sort of the last of these messages on Israel, Why Israel Matters, Part 3. And uh, I've titled this, Gabriel's Promise Realized, because I think that's what we see in the future. As I said, there's this inextricable link between this gift of Jesus Christ and this little nation and what God is going to do, um, not only to the whole world, but with this little nation. And um, I want to start in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Luke's gospel, in this promise that we hear in the first chapter, um, the Christmas promise that Gabriel brings. In verse 26, I'm going to read through verse 35. <clears throat> in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? 
Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. If you go through the birth narratives in the Gospels, in Mark, Mac, Mark Matthew, Luke, um, and you read this announcement, you read the announcement to Zachariah as he was serving in the temple, you read um, Elizabeth's song to Mary and words to Mary, and you read the Magnificat Mary's exaltation to Elizabeth, and, and you really read them closely, you just, you, you cannot miss, if you're trying to pay attention, the massive prominence of Israel and Jacob's descendants and the throne of David and the fulfillment of all that the prophets and our forefathers, I mean, it's just, it is so inextricably bound with this little nation. And we come to it having heard these words and having sung these songs for so long. And, and rightly, we see the whole world as being embraced by these words. And we should, right? That's what the gospel does. It doesn't stop in Jerusalem and Judea. It goes to the ends of the earth. And that was always part of God's plan. But I want to put it to you that that doesn't mean that Israel isn't part of God's plan. That doesn't mean that Jacob's descendants aren't still inextricably linked with these words. And so it can help us sometimes to sit down and think, what would it be if I wasn't an American in 2023, but I was Zachariah in this little besieged nation, reading these, hearing Gabriel say these things? What would it be like to be Elizabeth in this tiny harassed people group, oppressed and uh, Afraid, hearing these words uh, from Mary as she spoke the Magnificat. What would it be to Mary to hear these words today? The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. She would be thinking of her nation. And though she wouldn't necessarily, unless the Lord had prophetically revealed it to her, thinking of the whole world, she would be right to be thinking of her nation. In other words, the gospel is for more than Israel, but it's not for less than Israel. Does that make sense? It goes out to the whole world. But as Paul said, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, wherever he goes with the gospel, he would start in the synagogues. Because he knew that, that though the gospel is to reach the whole world, it is, it is meant to reach these people and this nation and Jacob's descendants whose kingdom will last forever and upon whose throne Jesus sits. It's the name of David, the king of Israel. And last time I asked you to consider this shape of history that so much of what the scripture says about Israel has come to pass and to let your soul be affected by God's sovereign hand over history. If you didn't hear those messages, they're online, on our website rather. And God has promised in his word to establish Israel as a nation forever. His promises to give them a homeland are said again and again and again to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, to the prophets, to be an everlasting promises. They don't run out. 
There's no uh, expiration date on these promises. More importantly, for the whole world, God promised to give Israel a Messiah who would not just be for Israel, a king who would rule Israel, but rule the entire world in righteousness. We know his first coming in these words from Gabriel to Mary, his Christmas day. God told Israel that they would be exiled from the land if they rejected him and rebelled against him. And we know from history that's exactly what has happened. And they experienced exile most profoundly and most painfully after rejecting the Lord Christ at his first coming some 2,000 years ago. God told Israel, however, that he would preserve them as a nation through all their wanderings. And as we look over the shape of history for 2,000 years, God has never let Israel cease to be a people, astoundingly. Though they've had no homeland and they've wandered upon all the earth, they should have lost their, their sociological identity long ago. They never have. Of course, this is exactly what God promised. And he promised that one day he would gather them back to the land. As far as he has sent them and scattered them, he says, it doesn't matter, I'll gather you back to the land one day, he promised. And of course, over the last 100 years, we have seen what may be an extraordinary fulfillment of this promise. As for the first time in 2,000 years, Jews from all over the world have felt burdened in their heart to return to their homeland. God told us they would become a nation again. We looked at that last time, and of course in 1948, on May 14th, they became a nation again. God told us all these things, but he's also told us things that have not happened yet, things that still wait in his prophetic word, that the mission to reach the world with the gospel would continue and continue and continue until every nation on the earth was reached with the gospel. And at that point, God says through his son, the end will come. We saw last week or last time we looked at Romans 9 that that Paul seems to intimate that the ending of that gospel mission to the nations culminates in a change of heart in Israel. That this nation that still rejects their Messiah, that is still filled with a hard-heartedness and stubbornness against their king, would have their heart changed one day and that they would be reconciled with God as a nation. That these words that Gabriel says to Mary, the Lord God will give him, that is Jesus, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. That that is a promise that is going to come to pass, and we see it all throughout the prophets, and if we're careful, we can see it in the words of Jesus and his apostles. But today we don't see that promise fulfilled. We do not see the son of the most high on the throne of David reigning over Jacob's descendants. We see the nation of Israel, as I said, hardened and largely rejecting their Messiah. And we see so much of the world and our own country as well increasingly hardened against God as well. We don't see this reign of righteousness upon the earth as Jesus has promised. We see nations oppressing and being oppressed and in the, in the last few months in particular, we've seen these flexing of, of these muscles of war and people are asking, are we headed back to some terrible global conflict again? We see our own country, America, increasingly divided. Tribal instincts on the right and the left are replacing our common frame of reference in the values of our constitution. 
This is a poor recipe for any house that wants to stand very long. And I thought to myself as I was working on this message, has the meaning of Christmas, of God's Son given to be Savior and King of the world, has it ever seemed less welcome in our culture? I see a clear antagonism on what would be called the, the, the left side of the aisle. And I see a wanton hardness on the right side of the aisle coalescing around promises of power and wealth. And yeah, it's, it's just tough. <laughs> but today I want us to consider that God's sovereign hand over history has not let go of us. I want us to see it, though, in, in a way we haven't looked at it, with, with a view to things that have not yet come to pass, specific, clear things in his word that have not come to pass. And I, I want us to draw together the consideration of the importance of Israel, Jacob's descendants and God's plan, with this promise that Gabriel gave that the Son of the Most High will indeed truly and fulfill in the fullest sense this prophetic word that he will sit on David's throne, that he will sit on that throne over Israel and over the whole world and he will rule in the fullest sense. That this promise that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the King of Israel and the King of the whole world and is going to rule in this world, it is not just sentimental. In fact, it isn't just immaterial. It isn't only in the realm of souls and spirits. That is the most important reality. God is a God who will be worshipped in spirit and in truth, right? It doesn't matter if, if, if we say God's on, you know, if, 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 if we go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship him, if he's not living in our hearts, Jesus would say to the Samaritan woman in John 4. The most important issue is not whether we say we worship Jesus or we go to this church, or we go to that church, but is he really on the throne of our hearts in that invisible place? If that's not true, if Jesus is not living and establishing his invisible rule in our hearts, then nothing else matters for us. But listen, Jesus' rule is also not just immaterial and spiritual. It is gloriously concrete in the scriptures. And it encompasses the fullness of our existence. We aren't just immaterial beings. We're bodies. We don't just live in the realm of ideas. We live on an earth. And just as surely as through his spirit, he is establishing his rule in our hearts as we grow closer to him, so will he fulfill God's promise to establish his rule on this earth, visibly, concretely, fully. We want him in our hearts. That's the most important things. But that's not the only thing. The end of it is, is that he's in our hearts and he's on this earth. And my goal, again, as we talk about things, is not to cause you to pull out your newspapers every day and try to track dates and times and promises and threats and wars and rumors of war, as it is to cause you to look up and say, oh, Lord, you are sovereign. And I can see more clearly as I read your word that you really do have all things in your hand. Help me worship you and be about your business because you are the coming king of this world. And now today even, you're the king of my heart. So towards this end, I want to take us through 
a survey of a particular book of the Bible, the book of Zechariah. I want to look at, um, we're not going to look at every verse. We're going to look at a few passages and the, and the broader outline of it, which speaks of things to come. And I want to remind you as we look at these passages, these are events which are in Scripture. These are not passages from popular end times novels. We're not going to be reading out of the Left Behind series. And, and, and these events as we see them, they're, they're concrete events. What I mean is, the passage we will read, they're, they're not laid out in metaphorical language of like seven-headed beasts and this leopard kingdom and this lion kingdom and this goat kingdom. We might see that in Daniel to a great degree. We see that in the book of Revelation. Zechariah is not like that by and large. It's concrete. Its language is more normal and more literal. I, I don't believe that, in other words, the point is, as you look at these words, I think, if I could say this, the concreteness is clear enough that it's very, very difficult to allegorize these events. In other words, we can't turn Zachariah's predictions of these events into poems and metaphors any more than we can call the crucifixion or the resurrection a metaphor for like deeper spiritual realities, but they don't really they didn't really happen in concrete time. Now I believe Zachariah is talking about events that are concrete and real. And, I, and as, I, as I've looked through Zechariah and studied these passages, I can't find any previous fulfillment for these events in history. I can't find any previous antecedents. In other words, I don't believe they conform to any known historical events that have already taken place. We are waiting for these things to take place. So these are things still to come. They're concrete. They're real, I believe. And, um, and they're... They're epic in the truest sense of the world. So I'm going to start with a few passages in Zechariah 12. If you want to go to Zechariah 12 with me, uh, you could open up your Bible there. In Zechariah 12, Yahweh introduces himself as the one who, quote, stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and form the spirit of man within him. Before he goes into any foretelling of important events, Yahweh, it seems like he, he's almost introducing himself again, as if for the first time, to tell us that something of monumental significance is coming from this monumental God. And he says this, he says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the world will gather against it. This idea in the very first line there, this idea of a cup of staggering is striking. It communicates intoxication, something that people almost can't resist, but they get themselves drunk on. And then they become confused and they end up hurting themselves with. The Lord says that in keeping with this, Jerusalem will become a heavy stone for all the peoples, that all who lift it will hurt themselves. All the nations of the world will gather against it. This pictures a great 
war happening in Israel, a massive confederation of nations. I mean, sometimes all doesn't mean actually every single thing, every single nation, but it means, it means close to all. It means pretty much everybody. And they're intoxicated with this city in particular. Something has drawn them in to this tiny city built on these dry, hard rocks, almost by a drunken magnetism. And yet all attempts to destroy or dominate this city lead to their own harm. And and let's just stop and think about today. Like even now we see this tiny nation and this tiny city. The nation itself has 7 million Jewish people, much less the city, how small it might be. And it's drawing worldwide controversy all the time. It's drawing the hostility of so many surrounding nations that are made up compared to Israel of hundreds of millions of people. Since the refounding of Israel in 1948, there have been, there's been war after war after war with these surrounding nations. And by and large, as these nations have surrounding Israel have come to take her and move her out of her place, they have harmed themselves, lost territory to Israel as they've tried to move her from her place. And by the way, I, I, again, I've, I want to make this disclaimer because I want to be really sensitive here. This isn't a political message. I, I'm not telling you that, that what Israel does is, is beautiful and perfect and what the Christians and Muslims are suffering in Palestine is, is just a lie and a joke. I'm not saying that at all. It's not true. Israel is not a Christian nation filled with born-again people doing beautiful things to love their enemies and care for other people. They're not. Israel's a, a nation... It's largely like ours, secular and hardened against the Lord. And though they, they're a democracy, and I probably would rather live there than any other nation in the Mideast right now, they're largely people who've rejected the Lord and need salvation, and they behave accordingly. But here, in the midst of this attack, coming back to Zechariah, the Lord protects the people. There's struggle, there's battle, but they're just not defeated. They're just not conquerable. And it says in verse eight, the reason is is that in that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the feeblest among them will be like David. Let's keep going. This is the heart of this message this morning. This is the glorious, beautiful heart of this message. Point three, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. This is amazing, and I just, I just can't do it justice, and as I prepare to speak this right now, my heart is getting, my, my voice is getting, because like, I, I'm just like, Lord, please work. This is such a joy to preach. Watch this. In verse 9 and 10, you see this dramatic change. First, this is Zechariah 12, first the Lord commits to take wrath on the nations that are attacking Israel. On that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. But before he does this, because he stops right there, before he does this, almost maybe we could even say this, before he can do this, in the sequence of this passage, in the midst of all this talk of Jerusalem being attacked and invaded and all this fighting and warfare, and God is going to stand for them and fight for them, something 
deeply, spiritually profound happens in the hearts of the people of Israel. This shift from verse 9 to verse 10. Look at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Listen to this again. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And what's the result of that spirit of grace? So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is just out of place. Like, What's going on? This is a terrible war with the whole world coming against Israel. But let's take a time out to do some mourning and grieving. The Lord describes in verse 10 how, and if you look at the larger context, I'm telling you, it's the entire nation. Their eyes are opened as if for the first time, God says, to having pierced God himself. This word pierced, it it usually connotes being killed. They are mourning. You don't mourn over someone who is hurt but is going to be recovered. You mourn over someone you have killed. The people have killed him. They're mourning over the fact that they have some sense killed God. Piercing him to death. And notice, when they grieve and mourn for him, they don't grieve for him simply as God. They mourn for him, how? As a son. As a firstborn. As the heir. The leader of the whole family. They mourn for him also as an only child. As if he's the only one they could depend on for the future of their family. Notice too this strange language. They will look on me and they will mourn for him. How can they look on me, first person, Yahweh, the one they have pierced, and yet the language changes immediately to mourn for him, second person? How is Yahweh going to be both first person me and third person he? And then as if in painstakingly great detail in the following verses, I won't quote it, but you can see it for yourselves over and over again. God describes how every single tribe in the nation and within that tribe, every single family in the nation and within that family, every single spouse in the nation and within those spouses, each by themselves, not even together. They're all grieving over the same thing, the piercing of Yahweh mourned for as a son. And it's a nationwide realization and yet it's not for show. It's not a feast or a festival or a religious groupy thing. Everybody is pierced in their hearts so deeply that they go into their own closet by themselves and grieve. It's a crazy explanation. It's just, 
Everyone is seeing it at the same time, but they don't come together to mourn together. They go off by themselves and mourn because every single person is pierced by this mourning of who they have pierced. This grief is so sudden in the text and so pervasive and so deep. It, it is not the grief. I don't believe it can describe the grief of the church as we conceive of it, brothers and sisters. It does not appear to be the grief of a people that has embraced the crucifixion of Christ and felt and sung and taught these truths for 2,000 years as the church has. This is not the church grieving over Jesus. This is the grief of, I believe, this is a grief of a people shocked as if seeing this for the very first time. This is a grief of a people this son belonged to. He was their only begotten son. He was their firstborn son, a people that rejected the son and killed him and never saw it until now. Everyone is seeing it. Everyone is seeing it at the same time and everyone is feeling it deeply. As the whole world turns against this nation, God becomes their defender, but as if for the first time, before they experience the fullness of his defense and protection, they realize to a man that their defender is the one they have pierced. Their defender is indeed Yahweh, but also their very son, a child given to them. Brothers and sisters, do I have to tell you how this passage, almost all in its own, with such glory, it pulls back the curtain on the whole Bible and the deepest truths of God. Here is the Trinity. The one who said, let us make man in our image. Here is Yahweh, the God who is spirit and has no human form and yet is also a son. The same son of man we see in the prophecies of Daniel 7, receiving all glory and honor and an everlasting kingdom. Here is the one of whom, Isaiah said in Isaiah, in, of whom Isaiah said in his ninth chapter, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and yet he will be called mighty God, prince of peace. Here is the one yet who, as Isaiah says, was not even recognized by the nation. How else could they have killed him? And only realized in this passage, finally, after all these centuries, that they had killed their own son given to them. He's the one that Isaiah 53 spoke about when he said he had no beauty or majesty that we should desire him. We despised him and we esteemed him not. And yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We are so privileged and so blessed. And I don't know if you can see it or feel it this morning in your heart. The incredible privilege that, that we can see these words and understand them. That God is revealing who he is to us. That Jesus Christ is indeed his son. As John the Apostle looked at the Lord hanging from the cross, he saw a soldier walk up to Jesus and thrust his spear into Christ's right side and I believe into his heart 
to make sure he was dead. And the, the, the soldiers saw blood and water coming out of Jesus. And then John wrote these things. He said, these things happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And yet, that was not the complete fulfillment of this prophecy, Zechariah tells us. Well, Matthew tells us and Revelation 1 tells us itself. Christ tells us that a day is coming when the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven and all the tribes of the land will mourn over the one they have pierced. That is a day still coming. Point four, the spirit of grace poured out. And so what is happening to Israel as they look at this son pierced by them and they realize who it is they have pierced as they grieve this only begotten son of God? 12.10, coming back. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will also remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanliness. That is, those prophets who prophesied in uncleanliness by the spirit of uncleanliness. Thus, as the nation recognizes as if for the first time who their Messiah has really been for all these thousands of years, the nation experiences forgiveness and cleansing and grace as they never have before. Just as Zechariah makes clear that it is every family and every husband and every wife in this nation that is experiencing this grieving and mourning. So that cleansing and that forgiveness and that spirit of grace comes over every one of those individuals. The whole nation experiences transforming grace. And thus the promises of Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and 37 and so many other passages, some of which we've talked about in the last few weeks, these passages finally find their fulfillment. This beautiful passage from Ezekiel 36, when God promises, let's go to the next slide, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my just decrees. By grace that new heart has happened to so many in the nations, to millions and millions and millions of Gentiles over the last 2,000 years. And yet this promise in Ezekiel 36 that we share in, that we receive from, it is no less for that reason a promise to Israel, this little nation. And they will receive this promise. And that's what Zechariah is telling us in, almost in real time. This is what's happening and he tells us how they receive this promise, how they receive the new heart. And it's the same way we receive the new heart. We recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was pierced for our transgressions, and he becomes meaningful to us. We grieve over our sin, and we put our hope in him. See, once God removes the sin of his people, and changes their heart, whether it's you or Israel, 
He will never judge them again. He will never exile you from his love. And in their case, exile them from the land he promised them. And so this brings an even more dramatic conclusion to this trouble for Israel. Point five, then the Lord my God will come. Then the Lord my God will come. As these chapters go on, as 14 goes on, warfare continues. We see Israel invaded, Jerusalem seized, terrible loss being suffered, pain at the hands of invaders who pillage and rape. Not too dissimilar from the way we heard about Hamas invading and pillaging and raping on October 7th. But in the midst of this battle, instead of the defeat and the destruction and the total exile that accompanies God's judgment in AD 70, instead of that judgment that they've received at their rejection of Christ, there is a radical reversal and an earth-changing moment. Zechariah 14, two through five, half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Now whether these holy ones are angels or resurrected believers, we're not told. But I'm so glad that verse is there because what it's telling us is that God is not just using others as he has for centuries, whether it's soldiers or missionaries, warriors or pastors, priests. He is not just using others. It says, the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. See, if, if it was just God using people, he would just say, the Lord God will come and we can understand it's an allegory. But it's like Zechariah saying, no, God's coming. He'll bring people, but God is coming. He'll bring angels, maybe, but God is coming. <clears throat> He'll bring resurrected Christians from the grave. I don't know, maybe that's what he means. But the point is, God is coming. Really great friends of his are coming, but he is coming. This passage is concrete. It's non-metaphorical. If you go into the words of it and the, the, the geography, there's specific earthquakes happening in specific places, creating specific geological issues on the earth. The Lord is portrayed here in concrete terms. He is portrayed as one who is standing, standing on two feet. He is portrayed as having human form. And notice, brothers and sisters, where he is standing. He is standing on the Mount of Olives, just across from Jerusalem, looking down upon it. This is the place, by the way, in Acts 1, from which he ascended 2,000 years ago. And what did the angels promise when Jesus ascended from Mount Olive? They promised he would return in exactly the same way. So we last saw him with his feet on Mount Olive. And the only other place I know that speaks of his feet at his return, there they are again on the Mount of Olives. <sighs> there is a deeply poignant reality to consider. 
When Jesus was ushered in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, let's think about Palm Sunday because we're Christmas, so I gotta re-reference you guys. Palm Sunday, the big plant, you know, the big palm tree branches, and they're all singing. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His disciples are crying out this phrase from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a messianic psalm. They were saying, this is our king. This is the son of David. But when Jesus, in that same story, when Jesus sees the city that they're coming up on, do you know what he does? He starts crying. He starts crying. And just a few days later, after those tears, as the Pharisees finalize their plans and conspire with Judas to kill Jesus, the son given, Jesus, knowing he's about to be fully rejected by this city and the people he came to save, he says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. You can go to the next slide, please. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. It's about to happen to him. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You were not willing. See, listen, your house, this city, this temple, your house, the house of David where the king's supposed to rule, your house is left to you desolate. Empty. In other words, I'm out of here. You rejected me. You're going to crucify me. I'm out of here. I'm leaving you. I'm abandoning you. And then he says this, for I tell you, you will not see me again. Listen to these words. These are incredible words if we think about what we're seeing in Zechariah. You will not see me again until, does he say you'll never see me again? No, he says, you will not see me again. What does he mean? What does he mean? He means that for three years, Jerusalem, the people of Israel, have been seeing him. Not just thinking about him or reading him in the scriptures. They've been seeing him with their own eyes. They've been seeing their king with hands and feet. They've been seeing the Messiah. He means it literally. And he says, now, you will not see me again until... Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The messianic psalm that they were just crying out, he was saying, you don't, you don't really believe that. You don't really understand. You don't really see who I am. It's a sad thing for him to say. But he's saying, you won't see me again with your own eyes until you see that I'm indeed your king, until you acknowledge that I am your Messiah. Can I just tell you that if you look at Psalm 118, verse 26, right, right after this part, right after in Psalm 18, which was written a thousand years before the people shouted it out, I believe. A thousand years before Palm Sunday. It's a messianic psalm. And if you look at that psalm, it, it, it says, it, it's crying out for the Messiah, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then it says this right after it. Save us, save us, save us, save us. It says right after that. 
Okay, so it's like, oh, oh Lord, here's, here's our king, here's our king. Save us, save us. We're in trouble from the Romans or we're in trouble from every nation. Save us, save us, right? And then it says this right after that. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A thousand years before Jesus ever came, his rejection is promised in Psalm 118. Brothers and sisters, he's the king. Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. Our Bible is true. His words are true. I don't say this in arrogance. How fortunate we are. We have the truth. We have the truth. I don't mean to be arrogant. You won't find this in the Quran. You won't find this in Hinduism or Buddhism or secular humanism. You won't find a God who knows the future and tells it to you again and again and again so that you know, so that you can have assurance, so that you can count on it. And so Jesus says, you won't see me again. I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you. Now, I'll watch over you as a nation, but from afar. I'll preserve you as a people, but from afar. You won't have me as your king. I'm, this gospel's gonna go to the nations. I'm leaving you. You won't see me again. You're left desolate until, not forever, until you are able to acknowledge that I am indeed your Messiah. And instead of crucifying me, worship me. That was the last time when Jesus said that, those words. You can mark it in Matthew's gospel. It's the last time Jesus is physically, publicly seen in the city doing his thing. The next time Jesus is seen in the city, he's being crucified, led out of the city by the corrupt Judaizers and Pharisees. You won't see me again until you acknowledge me as your Messiah. But listen, this tragic statement is a promise that until is life-saving. He makes this promise to Jerusalem, specifically this city, this seat of the Jewish nation where the Messiah is to take his throne. He says, when you come to recognize Jesus as your king, when you embrace me as your Messiah, then you will see me again. And this is exactly what Zechariah is portraying to us. Centuries upon centuries, Jesus is keeping his promise. In Zechariah 12.10, the eyes of Jerusalem and its inhabitants are opened to their true king and their true Messiah. And in the sequence of this book, he then appears with his feet on the Mount of Olives in person, standing there, coming in glory with all his holy ones to save his people from both their sins and from all those who have come against him, all these nations through whom the gospel has gone and run through and done its work. And at this point, I believe those nations are not interested in the gospel anymore. I believe this is coalescing with the time of the Gentiles coming to a completion. And that's even more why they're so hardened against Israel. Zechariah tells us when this happens, that, that when this happens in verse nine of verse 14, finally, finally on that day, he says in verse nine of 14, the Lord will be king over all the earth. Right? We, we see him ruling at the Father's right hand, but as Hebrews tells us, we do not see him yet ruling on this earth. But on that day, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one. His name, the only one. He doesn't mean we won't have names. <laughs> right? 
He means no one will matter in anyone's heart and mind more than him. No more idols. No more idols. No more worshiping my money. No more worshiping the America the way I want it. No more worshiping my right to define myself as whoever I want to define myself in ideological disorder and horror. No more idols. Just his name will matter the way it's supposed to matter. There are no more competitors to God's throne on the earth. All that oppose him suffer utter defeat. When this day comes, Gabriel promise, Gabriel's promise to Mary will come to pass in all its fullness. The Son of the Most High will take his throne not only in heaven, but on earth. And we pray every Lord's Prayer. May your will be done on earth, because it isn't yet, as it is right now in heaven. So Jesus is reigning in heaven. We want him on earth. And on that, on that day, that song that those shepherds sang on that Christmas evening, peace on earth. It will not just be a song, it will be a reality. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that his name is the only name, that Christ is Lord. Now here's a provoking idea, and I'm closing here. We're shutting down. It's 1143. Hang with me. We're landing the plane. But here's a provoking idea. What does the world need to look like just before Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 come to pass? What's the world need to look like? Well, if I'm interpreting it correctly, the Jewish people must be back in the land. And they haven't been back in the land for 2,000 years until the last hundred. So in the last century, they're starting to come back to the land. But they have to be blind to their Messiah, right? They can't have their eyes opened if their eyes are already opened. So they have to be back in the land hardened. Stubborn. Not a godly nation, but a hardened nation. And also we need the surrounding nations and increasingly the whole world to grow in its opposition and hostility towards Israel. Anybody seeing anything like that happening? For the first time in 2,000 years since Christ's first coming, isn't that not what we are beginning to see in the last century? The shape of history, brothers and sisters, is in God's hand. He has not forgotten the promise that Gabriel made to Mary. The son of the Most High is going to rule on David's throne and over Jacob's descendants, and his kingdom will have no end, which means It extends everywhere. But today we wait for that fullness. We wait for the fullness of the Gentiles to come. His gospel is still going through the nations. Hallelujah. He's still harvesting a people from every tribe, language, nation. So, in that vein, I want to close this in prayer. I want to pray for Dorcas today. Today the Lord seeks a harvest among these needy people coming for clothes and toys and treats. And here we are as a little church trying to do our part in that harvesting of the nations right here on 4th Street. And I know that, that you all have people in your heart, in your lives, in your family 
that you want to see God harvest for the Savior. So let's just, let me just pray for all of that, and then we'll close. Lord, help us today, Lord. Open the eyes of these people, these needy people coming today for clothes and toys and treats, Lord. Open their eyes. Give us hearts to confess you. Give us, Lord, um, love to care about them. Give us, Lord, discernment and clarity to have good conversations. Give us a love and accompanied by a courage to ask if we can pray for them. Lord, give us a courage and a compassionate boldness to tell them that you are the Lord and that they need you and to call them to you. Most of all, Lord, do what only you can do. Pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy on these people today, just like you, you are going to pour out on that nation, Lord, that's still waiting. Pour it out on these folks coming. Bless the work of our hands for your glory. And God, I just, I just pray that you would birth in our hearts people, coworkers, relatives, neighbors, whom you want to reach with this message of Jesus the Messiah, whom you want to pour upon a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, to see you, the one they have pierced, and mourn for you and receive you as their Lord. Lord, please put those people in our hearts and use us, Lord, to, to extend the invitation, Lord, to come to you, the King, to receive you, Lord. Oh, Lord, you've given us so much truth. We can be confident in you. You do what you say. You are who you say. Please help us to believe it. Please help us to live like it. Oh, God, we need your help for that so much. In Jesus' holy name, we pray. Amen.